Um, we're going to jump right in. Uh, I, I don't feel the need to pander to you guys and try and pull you in. Uh, you guys are here by your own choice. That's one of the things that I love about this ministry and about your age group and being able to come and, and, and speak to you guys. I normally speak to high school and junior high students, and, and I, I love the difference that when you get to this age, no one's forcing you to be here. You chose to come. And I have to assume that if you chose to come, it's because you have some level of interest in being around this and this series encounter and what it means to attempt to encounter God. I, I love that, by the way, that we're including the word of God. And I guess that probably makes a lot of sense when you talk about encountering God through his word or maybe the importance of the Bible in seeking to encounter God. One of the first things that I thought of when Paul told me about this and said, hey, this is what I want you to, to speak on, and he told me the series, I just had this question. Do you want to encounter God? And you might think, well, yeah, obviously that's, that's why I'm here, and maybe for some of you that is true, but I think if we don't answer that question, then really the rest of what we're going to talk about, you're, you're not going to have a lot of extreme interest in. And for those of you who would say, no, I'm, I'm a believer, I'm here, I'm trying to encounter God, I want to encounter God on a regular basis in my life, awesome. But if you're here and you're newer and you're checking things out and you're just not sure and you're trying to answer that question as you go along in this series, I just want to give you a couple things as we begin. I would submit to you that you do want to encounter God. The only assumption that I'm going to make, or, or come with me and assume, if you will, that, that God exists. You, you, for a moment, you don't even have to define who he is. Just let's assume together that God exists. I'm, I'm going to make that assumption because you're here. That you assume that a God exists, a higher power, something that has to do with who we are and what we're doing here. And in every story and in every iteration of God that I have ever heard, God has something to do, if not ultimate authority, over creation how you were made, who made you, the beginning, and over final judgment, over the end. And, and so if that is true, if that is true that God is creator or God is whoever that might be, right? If God is creator and he is over the beginning and he is over or has some say in final judgment, I would think that every single person in this room would go, well, yeah, I want to encounter God because if he is that person, then he has all the answers to all of the biggest questions that anyone in the world has. He has the answers to questions like, what is the meaning of life? He has answers to the questions like, what am I here for? What am I doing here? He has questions like, why is there so much? Or he has answers to the question, why is there so much evil in the world? What is wrong with people? He has answers to the questions, what what provides true satisfaction? So if we answer the question, do we want to encounter God, and I suggest or submit to you that you absolutely do, then the question becomes, okay, so how do we do it? And I know that Paul mentioned you've talked through solitude, you've talked through prayer and the, the spirit of God. I, I, what we're going to talk about tonight is the foundation of encountering God. In fact, the things that we know about prayer and the things that we know about solitude and the things that we know about the Holy Spirit all come from the very word of God. And in fact, if you think that you are encountering God without any influence of the word of God, you need to be really, really careful about what God or what version of God or if you're actually encountering the one and true and only God. Because there are a ton of people out there and a ton of people in our world who love the idea of spirituality, who love the idea of a rhyme or reason to the universe, who love the idea of there being someone up there who is watching out for them, but because we are human and because we love, as Terrell Owens says, because we love me some me, we like to make God who we want him to be. And without the word of God as our rudder, without the word of God instructing us, without the word of God revealing 
who God truly is, we will do the, that age-old thing, uh, and I don't even know who said this, but basically that, that age-old adage that God created man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Do you get it? <laughs> one, one person. You, you, can, you can say something. It's, I, I know there's a word play at, at hand there, and maybe it's a little late in the day. So God made man in his image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. The idea is that man loves to make God who we want him to be. The word of God is instrumental. <laughs> was, that, was that like, oh. All right. I might have assumed too much on the intelligence of the college-aged crowd. I'm, I'm kidding. You guys are the most intelligent people I've ever spoken to. It's not true. So, so if, we, if we want to encounter God, I just want to answer a few questions tonight. So in the interest of, again, trying to keep this somewhat brief, I'm trying to do math now. What, what's 35 minutes away? I probably already talked. 30 minutes away from 756, 726. Okay. All right. So here we go. We're going to answer three questions. Eight tw- oh, did I say 726? <laughs> Thank you, Aubrey. I appreciate that. It's good. So I, I would, we, would, we would have been here all night. I mean, 11 hours and 30 minutes had you not corrected me there. So anyway, um, we're going to answer three questions. We're going to answer why, okay? Why do I want to encounter God through his word? Or, or, or why should, should I care about getting into the word of God? What will I find in it? And how do I do it? How do I do it? <clears throat> Obviously, like I said, this is a hard topic to tackle in a short amount of time. I was talking to Paul a little bit beforehand, and I know that like, this is, this is, you could do a 10-week series just on what you get out of the Word of God about God himself. And so these lists, and when I talk about the why and the what and the how, they are not intended to be exhaustive at all. They're just the ones that God laid on my heart for you guys for tonight. And why he does that, I, I don't know. He does that by his spirit. But I just want to give you a couple things in each of those categories that hopefully will encourage you, hopefully will inspire you, maybe challenge you to get involved in the word of God, to, to pick it up if you haven't in a while, to engage with it if you never have, to continue if it's something that you've really been trying to do a lot more often lately. So why? Why should you? Um, and here's the one thing that I want to major on. You can trust the word of God. Why should you engage? Why should you encounter God through his word? Because you can trust it. I've realized as I've gotten older that I, I grew up in a, uh, a great home. That's not necessarily what I realized. I knew I grew up in a great home. But what I've realized is that there's a lot of things that I take for granted growing up in a pretty good home. Like, for instance... We live in a day and age where trust is a commodity that is not easily given. I grew up in a home where trust came naturally to me because though my parents obviously were not perfect, my dad was a man of his word. He, he did what he said he was gonna do. When he told me something was the way, this is the way it's gonna be, I saw him follow through on that. My mom was a, a dedicated servant to us as a family out of love for us. And, and I saw that. And it became very natural for me to trust them. And so when I was asked to trust other people, that was a natural thing for me. But here's what I know. For over 50%, at least, if not more of you in this room, you had terrible examples of what trust was. At early ages in your life, you invested your natural trust in people and they let you down. Or maybe worse than letting you down, they hurt you. They took advantage of you. And we live in a sad state, a sad culture where people don't trust naturally anymore. The internet has made it possible for anyone with an iPhone to espouse a theory about anything and we are subjected to it. How many of you have believed a lie that you read on the internet? And the rest of you are lying, right? Only to later find out that it was not true, right? These types of things make us a little bit less trusting. And, and, and here's where we are in, in our culture it, it, where 
where if, if we want to encounter God and we want to get the answers to these real questions in life, we're left, if we don't encounter God through his word, we are left to either answer those big, deep, important questions for ourselves or we turn to the, to the idols of our age, and I don't mean idols like idolatry. What I mean is like American idols, like the pop culture icons. Maybe icon is a better word. We're forced to turn to like uh, John Mayer or Post Malone, Ariana Grande. Ariana, sorry. It's got some real fans in here. Apologize. Um, we're forced to turn to them because they're the biggest voices in our culture. They're the biggest voices in our culture, and they're telling us what they think is best. And the, the reality is I'm not here to, to bag on any of them because they're doing the best they can. It's an unfair position to put them in. It's an unfair position to put them in that just because they're talented musically or talented with acting or talented with whatever they are, that somehow they're going to answer these big questions in life. Yet there are so many people who are living like, well, the loudest voice wins. The loudest voice in my life wins, and it takes me down that road. You can trust the Bible. There's a lot of things out there that you can't trust, but you can trust the Bible, and not just because I say you can't. So for those of you in the room, um, I, I don't want to go down too long of a trail on this, but I, I felt like, okay, this is part of what makes me excited, and if there's other nerds in the room, you'll be excited about some of this information as well, okay? When I say you can trust the Bible, what I mean is when I hold this book in my hands, I trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that these are God's words to me. Now, any relationship that I have with God is going to take a measure of faith. Any relationship you have with God is going to take faith. And that faith, the Bible tells us, is a gift from God. And what that means is that if I'm supposed to have a relationship with the God of the universe, a God who is so overwhelming and so huge and so big that I could never comprehend everything about him, that actually gives me a little bit of comfort because I would not want to serve a God who was just like me. I would not want to serve a God who I could understand every single thing about because that would mean that he is as small as I am. It takes a measure of faith to have a relationship with God. But at the same time, God did not expect you to follow blindly something that had no proof, no reason, no logic behind it. So when we begin to look at this word and I say, I trust unequivocally that this is the very word of God, you say, well, why do you trust that? Because even when I exhaust science, I am left with proof that this is, in fact, the word of God. In 1946... We made an incredible discovery. But let me tell you a little about before 1946. Pre-1946, the, the oldest manuscript we had, manuscript is simply the Bible in the original languages. The oldest manuscript we had was from about 930 A.D., okay? That's pretty old, but it's not anywhere near as old as the Bible or getting into where the Bible was written. And so you think through that and you go, well, man, that's not very old. The oldest manuscript we have is 930 A.D. And the Bible itself, the Old Testament, let's take for instance, was written from 1440 B.C. or around that to around 400 B.C. And just in case you don't know how dates works, it is a little bit confusing and stupid because B.C. works backwards and A.D. works forwards. So we're living in A.D. and we're in the year... 2020? I don't even know what it is. 2019. It's not 2020 yet. Okay. We're in 2019 AD, right? You work backwards and it gets older and older and older. Once you hit zero, now the number goes up BC. So the higher number BC means even older. Okay. Does that make sense? So 1400 to 400, around a thousand year period where the Old Testament is written. And up until 1946, the oldest manuscripts we had was 930 AD. But all of the manuscripts that we had from over a thousand years of different levels of manuscripts, there was less than a variation of 1%. Less than a variation of 1%. And no, no um, critical theology or critical passage was any different. Then in 1946, an incredible thing happened. In 1946, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was incredible for biblical scholarship. Now, okay, remember our oldest was 930 AD. Now we have stuff that goes into like 160 to 230 BC. We're talking about manuscripts that are a thousand years older than anything we've ever had. And do you know how much difference there was between 
what the Dead Sea Scrolls said and what the 930 AD copy said? Less than 1%. In fact, it was less than a half a percent. And here's what I want you to know. Yeah, the, the scribes were diligent because they knew it was the word of God. But that doesn't happen with diligent scribes. That happens because God has promised that he will preserve his word, and he did. That's why that happens. Because in the Bible, he says, I will preserve my word, and he decided that he would. I want to give you another kind of little deal for maybe the, the New Testament. Because um, that's the Old Testament. It was written in Hebrew. So how about the New Testament? Are you guys familiar with the Iliad? The works of Homer? Or uh, the, uh, what did you say? The Odyssey as well, yeah, the Iliad, the Odyssey. Or um, uh, uh, Plato's uh, or, or Pliny's Natural History, some different works that we consider um, great books of, of not only history, but great books in history. Well, no one ever assumes that a book like the Iliad, written by Homer, the one that we read right now, no one ever assumes that this isn't exactly what Homer had written. In fact, we feel like we have pretty good scholarship on it and I assume that when I read this in college or read this in some class that I'm reading in or for fun, I don't know who reads that for fun, but when someone does, this is actually what he wrote. Well, here's, I want you to understand, the Iliad was written in 850 BC. That, that's really old. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's 1700 years, 1750 years to be exact. But the number of copies we have is 643. We have 643 different copies of it, kind of original manuscript, original language that kind of agree with each other. And we're like, okay, that's, that's good enough. Why would we ever doubt the validity of the Iliad, of Homer? I want you to compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament was written from 50 to 95 AD, so it was written over 45 years. Um, we have basically co collected um, from 114 A.D. to 325 A.D. manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. So we're only talking not 1,750 years, but m many less, like 200 years after when it was actually written. And you know the number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament? There's over 5,000. So when I look at this book and I say you can trust it, it's not just because I have a tremendous faith in the word of God itself and a tremendous faith in God that is a gift from him to me. But I trust it too because God has graciously given us reason to trust that this very book is the word of God and that everything that he wanted to communicate to us, he has communicated to us. So in a world where trust is something that is not easy to come by, I want you to know that you can trust it. In fact, Talking about this very fact, Norman Geisler, who kind of has dedicated his life to a lot of biblical scholarship, said this. The New Testament has survived in a much purer form than any other great book, like any of those books from Homer or Plato. Over 99% pure, in fact, over 99.5% pure. Variant readings of significance amount to less than one half of 1% corruption, none of which affect any basic Christian doctrine. The evidence for the integrity of the New Testament is beyond question. So one of the reasons why I would say you should encounter God through his word is because there's a lot of things in the world that you can't trust, but you can trust this. You can trust the word of God. Let me give you another reason, kind of on the other end of the spectrum. It's an incredible story. Why should you engage with it? Why should you get involved in it? It's an incredible story. And here it is. It is a collection of a lot of smaller stories that tell one very large story. The Bible itself is a story. It's God's story to us. And in fact, in it, there's a lot of entertaining things. I've often talked to other pastors and friends about like, you know, hey, if the Bible was made a movie, that would be really, really awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be really, really cool. I'm like, yeah, but you know, if the Bible was made in a movie and it was like really, really accurate, like, it would be a gruesome, graphic, rated R movie. It would not be a rated G animated flick where Jesus is walking around with sheep on his shoulders all the time. Because that's not all the stories in the Bible. As an example, some of my favorite things to, to remember or like, gosh, like, one of those, is that story really in the Bible? Have you guys heard the story of uh, Ehud and Eglon or Eglon? Have we? 
Yeah? So, some of you had? Okay, so Ehud, the left-handed assassin. How many of you are familiar with the story? Oh, good. There's like six of you. That's good. You might remember this when I tell you this, but this is in the Bible, okay? Agwan is a king of Moab. He's oppressing Israel, God's people. God obviously is not pleased with this, and Ehud is a servant of God who gets a meeting with the king, basically saying, I'm going to bring you an offering from my people, the Israelites. Well, Ehud is left-handed, which means that for him, he uses this hand for his sword, and he's going to put his sword on his right hip. Most people then were right-handed, and they would put their sword on their left hip. Because obviously, if you try and do this with a sword, it's not going to work very well. You know, you need to get a full, you know, get that sword out, right? Well, because most people are right-handed, the normal thing to do if you're doing a, a guard check and it's not like a full-on, like, strip search or anything, is you're going to pat the guy down on his left hip because most people are right-handed. Ehud is left-handed. He's got it on his right hip, and he's got it concealed a little bit. And he walks in to have a meeting with the king, gives him the offering, and the king is, is pleased with the, with the offering. And he's like, oh, yeah, and Ehud is starting to leave. And he goes, hey, wait, king, I have a secret message for you. And he goes, oh, what is it? And he dismisses all of his, like, guards and his people. He goes, I want to hear this secret message. He says, well, come a little bit closer. Come a little bit closer. And then left-handed Ehud rips out his sword, and it says they, it stabs him into the belly, but Eglon happens to be a very large king, a very fat king, and it says that it goes in past the handle and the fat closes around it, and then he falls over dead. And then Ehud skips on out of there, closes the door, tells him, hey, he's indisposed, he's going to the bathroom. You don't want to go in there. <laughs> so they stay out there while he's keeled over up in this like upstairs patio and and dies. And this is the way that God judges an evil king, right? Like, that's a crazy story. There's other stories. Just look in Judges 3 and 4. You'll enjoy Judges 3 and 4 and 1 Kings 2, okay? We won't go into those. But there's a story in the Bible where a guy calls down a curse on a group of kids that are making fun of him, and bears come out of the forest and maul 42 kids. It's, it's also pretty amazing. So, if you want reasons to read the Bible, one, I think there are some really, really great stories in there on the lighter side. But more than that, the big story, the big story is what you want to get. It is compelling. It is entertaining. It is engaging. And you can absolutely trust it. So if you get into the Bible, what are you going to find? Okay? What are you going to find? I have two things for you, and, and they're kind of, again, just like the, the, the why you should read it. One of them is real serious, like you can trust the word of God. The other one has a little bit more levity to it. It's got some great entertaining and cool, good stories. You, you'll, you will engage with it if you understand what it is, and you begin to read it, and you begin to, you begin to love it, and you, you're entertained. It, it's great. It's awesome. This as well, what will you find in it? Like I said, I can't exhaust. There's so many things, so many incredible things that you will find in it, but let me give you two. And I almost skipped this one because the, the second one that we're going to talk about is really the main thing that I, I wanted to talk about tonight anyway, is like, what, what do we get out of the Bible? Where do we really encounter God? How do we encounter God in the Bible? The second one is really the one, and I almost skipped the first one. I said, no, you know what? I, I want to talk about this first one because I feel like it gets a bad rap. And, and I feel like we should understand it the way that maybe David understood it. So here's one thing that you're going to find in the Bible if you read it. And I would put it this way, too, that these also, the what's, also fall under the why category. This is why I read the Bible, or, or one of the reasons that I want to encounter God in the Bible. The first thing you're going to find in there is law. Ooh, that's exciting. You're going to find law. How many of you have a super positive reaction to the word law? One person. So we're not conditioned to think that the law is good. We're not conditioned to, to feel that way. But I, I want you to see David in the Old Testament is called a man after God's own heart. We're told that his love relationship with God rivals anyone else's in history. His encountering God rivals anyone else. In history. And so I want us to look at a couple things that he says. In fact, Psalm 1 says this 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He also says in Psalm uh, 119, uh, 1 through 11, how, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments or your law. I have stored up in your word, or I've stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then he goes on in verse 97, I think it is. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then in 105, he says, your word or your law is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I think you also have Joshua 1, 8 in there. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I think so many of us come to that passage or passages like that and we go, yeah, I get it, God. I get it, God. I'm, I, I'm supposed to love your law. Like David was this, you know, sort, sort of like this guy who loved a little bit of pain, and so he loves the law of God. And, and why does David love the law of God? Well, he loves the law of God because he's a man after God's own heart, so he's, he's doing the hard things. He's doing the things nobody else wants to do, and he's in there loving the law of God because he knows that in order to love God, he's got to love the law of God, even though no one really likes law. And I think we get that in our head, that that's what it means for us. That when we come to the Bible and the Bible instructs us to do something, there's kind of like this reluctant willingness, like this, you know, like, man, this isn't the first thing that I want to do. It's, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I know that God is in control. I know I'm a Christian. I know I believe this. And so I, I know I need to do this. And we look at David and we think he was just the master of that. Although we know from the story of his life, he wasn't always the master of that. And we just think, man, that David, he's just aggressive. He's just passionate, and he puts it all out there. And I want to suggest to you something. Finding the law in the Bible from David's perspective is much different than that. Why does David love the law? Because David doesn't see it as restriction. He sees it as freedom. Now listen to me when I say that. David sees the law as freedom. And I know that that's a, a weird way to think about it, a weird way to look at it. Like the law doesn't feel like freedom. There's no place in the world where you would go, yeah, laws are freedom. Except in a pretty real sense, they do create freedom. Like why is a speed limit there? Why is there a speed limit? So that I can't get to a place as fast as I want to. Why is the speed limit there? Because I feel like it's restrictive. When it says 55 and I want to drive 85, that is restricting me. No, but you know what it also is doing? It is freeing you to have safety on the road. Because what if there was no speed limits? And people drove however they want, wherever they wanted. There's some countries where that happens. And the death tolls on the roads are insane. It's crazy. See, there's freedom in the law. And the way that David looks at this is he goes, God I know who you are. I know that you made me. I know that you know what satisfies me. I know that you know what makes me happy and what gives me joy and what will give me true satisfaction. And your law, I know, God, that you did not mean for it to be restrictive. You meant for it to show me the best way to live, the right way to live. These are your instructions to me. These are your love to me. When David says, I love the law, I meditated on it day and night, he's saying, God, thank you. God, thank you for caring enough about me to show me the best way to live. Thank you for caring enough about me to tell me when I'm being an idiot. Thank you for caring enough about me. You didn't have to share any of this with me, God. You didn't have to tell me the reason that I was made. You didn't have to tell me what things would make me miserable and what things would make me happy. But God, you did. You told me the best ways to live because you are the originator of humanity. So when David says, I love your law, I meditated on day and night, it's not a disciplined David going, well, I guess this is what I have to do because God says I'm supposed to love his law and if God wrote it, I guess I'm, I'm gonna get in trouble if I don't. David is saying, God, thank you. 
you've given me something that I could not produce in and of myself. I love your law. I meditate on it because it brings me joy and it brings me peace and it brings me fulfillment. So in the Bible, when you see the law, and, and just to give you a little bit too, I'm not talking about going deep into Leviticus, okay? Leviticus is the Levitical law. When David is talking about the law of God, he's talking about the precepts of God. He's talking about the instruction for life. He's talking about things that align with the Ten Commandments and the ways that we see Jesus living. He's talking about God's instruction for life. I love that. I meditate on it. I don't see it as restrictive. I see it as freeing because it frees me to be who I was made to be. It frees me to say no to things that I know I shouldn't do even though I feel like sometimes it's really confusing. And the world around me is swirling and they're telling me, oh no, you were made for those freedoms freedoms. You were made to, to, to go out and, and party and do anything you want with your body. More drinking, more drugs, more sex, what, whatever feels good in the moment. Like you have the freedom to do that and anything that tells you not to do that is restrictive. No. See, that's what David is saying. I meditate on those things so I don't get into that kind of trouble and I can, I can hear what God says. Oh, you're not made for those things. They might have some level of temporary fun or temporary satisfaction, but they leave every single person in the same place. Misery. God's saying that's not what you're made for. And I wrote the law. My law is there for you so that you can live a better life, so that you can live a life more the way I designed it. Okay, so the law is one thing. It feels, like I said, it can feel harsh, but really it's freedom. And here's the biggest thing that I think that you get when you look into the Bible. When you encounter God through the Bible, what I want you to think about and what I want you to see is that you get Jesus. Unlike what most of us think when we think of the term law, and hopefully I did a decent job of explaining the opposite perspective on law, we think of the Bible possibly at times as restrictive. Or we think of the Bible and we think it's a guidebook for life. I look in it to find out what I'm supposed to be doing and what I'm supposed to not be doing. It's a self-help book for Christians. It, it, it's, it's my handbook. If I come to the Bible like that, I'm not going to encounter God. I'm going to encounter a way of life that I may or may not like. I, I'm going to encounter verses that try and help me deal with things that I feel bad about in my life, and I'm trying to stop. But if I don't encounter Jesus in the word of God, I don't know why we're reading it. As I told you before, this book is a story. When I was first saved, I, I came to the Bible and I loved it. I was in love with reading my Bible. I made it a goal to get through the whole Bible in a year. And, and I did that and I was enthralled by it. But after about a, two years, I, and, and I guess I should caveat that a little bit, because I don't even know why I care, but I got saved when I was very young. I'm talking about the time in my life where I actually really fell in love with God. You ever have those, those moments in your brain where you're like, you can't get past something until you say something? Like in my mind, this is literally what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, I just said that, you know, when I first got saved, I really fell in love with the word of God. But then if they hear me share my testimony in another place and I say I got saved when I was five, are they going to think that I jumped into the Bible at five years old? Like, that's not really what happened. You're now in the, the crazy world of my brain, so I apologize for that. Anyway, when I got serious about my faith, I jumped into the word of God and I dove in. I dove in hard as a high school student. But after two years, it was boring to me. Have you anybody experienced that? Have you ever experienced that where at first you're super excited and then all of a sudden it gets boring? Here's why. I know why. Because I was looking at it as, a, as like, what can this book do for me? How, how can this book shape my life? How can it teach me things about God that I don't know yet? And as soon as I felt like I knew most of the things that it said, I didn't feel like I needed to read it again. I didn't feel like I needed to read it anymore. I was not looking for Jesus in the word of God. I was not encountering God in the word of God. 
I was looking at it like this is my guidebook. This is my handbook for life. And if you've been doing that or you feel like this book has become stale to you, that's what you're doing. You're only looking at it for what you think you can get out of it instead of exploring the person that it reveals. This is not a book of principles. This is a story about a person. It's a story about a person who loves you. And there's a, I want to make this distinction because I heard someone say this the other day and it, and it's not that I totally disagree with it. He said, oh, this, maybe you've heard this. This is a love letter. <clears throat> it's a love letter. And yes, God's defining attribute is love. And this is sort of, there are pieces of it that are letters. But I, here's where I, the rub for me is. This is not just a love letter. When I think of a love letter, the subject or like the, the main point of the love letter is the one receiving the love letter. Right? If I write a love letter to my wife, it's not all about me. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm, if, I'm any good at it. I'm any good at writing the love letter to my wife. It's about her. Right? She's the one who feels special. When she receives the letter, she feels like this letter is about me. This is not a love letter in that sense. This is a story of revelation about someone who loves you deeply. This story, this book, is about God and God alone. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus is God. It says, the word was flesh and the word walked among us. In fact, there are so many times in the Bible where Jesus is called the word, which is why I love understanding that this is the very word of God. This is what he wants to communicate to you and what he wants to communicate to me. This is a story revealing him to us. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, let's open to John 1 right now. All right, John 1 says this. We're going to pick up the pace here a little bit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What we see in this passage is that, that God is basically saying, or John is writing through the inspiration of God, that Jesus Christ is the word of God. His life is the word of God. His words are the word of God. And the, what the person that this book wants to reveal to you is the person of Jesus. It is a story of his love for you. It is a story of his grace. Ultimately, it is a story of a God who loved us so much that even though we were separated from him, a great distance that could never be filled or never be earned back by us, he sent his son, Jesus, out of love for us to die on a cross, to take a death that we should have had, we should have paid for our own sin, but God said, no, I will, put, I will put on my son, Jesus. I will put your sin on him. This person, Jesus, is revealed in this book. And when you see him, you will fall in love with him. And when you see him, you will want to be more like him. When you see him and you see what he has done for us and you recognize this is a story that reveals him, that shows his glory, his majesty, that shows his love for me, that is something that I want. In fact, Paul said this in um, Philippians 3, 7 through 11. <clears throat> He's just gotten done talking about a lot of things on earth that that he could have claimed as like these great things. Like, like, I've got all this stuff on earth that a lot of you would want. I've got this acclaim and I was born of a great birthright and I got this and I got that. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him 
in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, Paul's greatest desire in life was to know Christ. If you want to encounter God, you need to encounter Christ. Because he is God. And in this book, the revelation of the life of Jesus is the foundation of encountering everything that God is and everything that you're longing for, the satisfaction for your soul, the answer to all of the big questions in life are found in the revelation of Jesus through the word of God. So you find in the Bible, the law, you find in the Bible, and I just want to share this uh, kind of this connection. One of my favorite verses when you come to, to scripture is um, Hebrews 4, 4.12. And I never understood exactly what this meant. I thought that I did. I thought that I did, but until I understood this concept of a story revealing a person and not this book being about just a bunch of principles that helped me with my life, like I said, it's not about principles. It's about a person. But knowing the person reveals the principles he lived his life by. And I want to be like him. And Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There was one side of this verse that I always understood and I loved. The Bible will pierce your heart. There's a scene in the movie um, Rocky. Have you guys seen the original Rocky? I'm dating myself big time now, but it's a classic, so... What, the famous line uh, that he says to his trainer towards the end of the movie, remember he says he's, his eye is all swollen. He says, it's not the only, it's, this line's not that famous, so I guess, because now you're saying lines, I'm, well, that's much more famous than what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Basically, he says he, he, he can't see because he's gotten his face bashed in so far, and he says, cut me, Mick. Yells out to his trainer, and what is he saying? He's saying, Cut this giant swollen thing on my eyeball. Why? Because he wants you to cut it open so that the swelling goes down so that his eye opens and he can see what he's swinging at. Because right now his eye is so swollen, full of blood, that he can't see anything. So that's what they do in boxing a lot of times. They will cut this giant bruise on your face and bleed that thing out and then put Vaseline all over it so that you can see a little bit. It's a great sport, huh, boxing? So that you can see a little bit and see what you're swinging at, Right? The idea is that the, the cut relieves pressure and allows you to see. There's a very real way, and I've understood, I understood this initially, like the Bible reveals, it cuts. It allows you to see yourself for who you are. When you read it and you ask yourself the questions that it asks of you, you will see your sin. You will see how the law is better than your sin. But there's another interesting thing. It says the Bible is living and active. What does that mean? What does that mean the Bible is living and active? I know it means this, that it's not like any other book. It means that every time I come to it, the, the working of the Spirit in my heart with it can give me something new and convict me of something new, teach me something new, challenge me, encourage me in different ways. I knew that. But is this like some sort of magical book where like the words pop off the page like in some sort of animated psychedelic you know, movie or something? No, that's not what it is. The reason this book, the reason the words of this book are living and active is because the word is Christ. The word is Jesus. Why is it living and active? Because Jesus Christ is living and active. He raised from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave. Jesus Christ is living and active, and if these words are his words to me, then they are living and active because he is living and active. He is the person that this reveals. He is the person I want to know. He is the person that I long for. The word is living and active. It cuts to the quick. So we've seen kind of the why. We've seen a couple <coughs> answers of the what. Now just quickly, the how. Let's get practical for just a second. Because I, I wouldn't feel great about it if I, you know, didn't, didn't get practical. I, I, I want you to see Jesus. 
I want you to want Jesus. And, and here's what I know, and I was praying this on my way here. I, I can't make you want that. I can't make it attractive to you when I tell you that the word reveals Jesus and you should want him. I, I can't move in your heart, but he can, and I'm prayed, I prayed for you. I prayed that the spirit would move and that when you heard, well, wait, this isn't a guidebook. This isn't a rule book. It's not a science book. It's not a book of history. This is a book about Jesus. This is what reveals him to you, that that would be compelling to you. I don't know why that's not more impressive to us. I don't know why it's not more impressive to us that the God of the universe who created everything we see and created us, why it's not more impressive to us that he wants a relationship with us. And that he gave us this, this living and active book that we can delve into anytime we want to see more of him, to know more of him. You know, I heard that if you um, took a blue whale, <coughs> like 100 feet long or whatever they are, does anyone know how long a blue whale is? We're going to go with 100 feet. Yeah. Blue whale is 100 feet long. I heard that if you drop a blue whale, that is 100 feet long, from 100 feet in the air into a pool of water that is as big as a football field. Think about that. That's, that's big. Pool of water as big as a football field. You drop a blue whale into that pool. The sheer force and mass and size of the blue whale will clear the entire pool of all of its water. Like the, the tidal wave, boom, everything's gone. That would be an amazing thing to see. Wouldn't you think a blue whale dropping from 100 feet in the air hitting a pool and smashing all the water out of it? Well, it's not true. I made that up completely. I have no idea if that's true or not. But all of us want to see incredible things. Like, if I said, listen, guys, listen up. Outside in that field, we got some spotlights ready. We're going to light it up out there. And we got on a crane a blue whale. And we filled that field with water. And we're going to test this theory. You'd be like, oh, my gosh. You'd all be like, calling PETA. <laughs> Man, I hope not. I hope that's not true. But anyway, but you'd be, I was just going to try and make social media references, and I'm not good at social media, so I realized I was going to say some really dumb things, like you're going to put it on Snapchat, which people probably don't even do anymore. I don't know. You'd be all over your phones posting it to wherever you post it, Right? But if I tell you that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who created you, the Bible says knit you together in your mother's womb, he wants an eternal, everlasting relationship with you, and he loves you more than anybody could ever love you in the history of the universe. We go, eh, I've heard that before. I can't fix that, but I'm praying that God will. And I'm praying that God will in the form of pushing you towards encountering him in his word. So how do you do it? Step one, get a Bible. And here's what I'm going to suggest. Get a real Bible. Get like a hard copy of the Bible. Don't depend on an app on your phone. Get one that you can delve into the pages of, that, that the, the location of a passage on a page becomes familiar to you, that you can take a couple notes in, that you can spend time with physically interacting with. Get a Bible. Start somewhere and start small. Don't make a grandiose commitment, oh my gosh, I'm going to read the whole Bible tomorrow. I am, I am gung-ho, I am on fire. Take wherever you are right now with the Bible and take it to the next step. If you're not doing anything, read a couple verses a day. If you're already doing that, maybe invest a little bit more. Engage more with the Bible, but start somewhere, start small. You don't need to make some grandiose commitment. Make your first goal. I want to encounter Jesus. I want to see Jesus. And if that's your first goal, the book of John is a great place to start. Yes, the Bible has instruction Yes, the Bible has answers, but to be truly satisfied, to truly have joy, you have to get those answers. You have to get that instruction from knowing the love of Jesus, not from just going to the Bible for whatever it is. Fall in love with him. And I'll tell you this too. 
as you're working your way through the Bible, use a trusted person, <clears throat> not Google, for your questions, okay? What's a trusted person? Well, a trusted person might be a pastor here, someone you know who has fallen in love with Jesus of the word of God and knows who he is. There's so much garbage out there on Google. There are a ton of great resources, too. There's awesome resources, too. But if you're new and, and you're not sure what to trust, man, trust a person who knows Jesus. Trust Paul. Trust your life group leader or some, one, of, one of the leaders around here. They will point you in the right directions. And then last but absolutely not least, actually, I'll give you two more. Get some discipline. Discipline's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I beat my body into submission. I make it do what I want it to. So get some, get some discipline and, and go, okay, God, I, I'm making this commitment to you. I know I'm not always going to feel like it, but the Bible says I should discipline myself, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to discipline myself. And then, last but absolutely not least, pray. Pray, pray, pray. Pray before you read the Bible, pray while you're reading the Bible, pray after you read the Bible, because you want to encounter God, right? I don't want to encounter words on a page. I don't want to encounter just this thing, reading it. I want to encounter the living, active word of God who is Jesus himself. So pray for the Holy Spirit to do that in your life. The Bible says that he will illuminate our hearts he will show us what the Bible says. The Bible also says that people who don't know Jesus, their minds, their eyes are blinded to the words of the Bible and they can't see what God wants them to see in it. So pray, pray that God will show you what he wants to show you in his word. But I, I wanna leave you with this, the, the how-to, yeah, great, whatever, but fall in love with Jesus. Encountering God means encountering Jesus. Encountering Jesus means seeing him in the word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, tonight. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, God, when I, uh, when I speak about your word, God, I, there's so many things that I wish that I could communicate better than I do. And so, God, I pray for your spirit, and I pray for the moving of your spirit. God, I pray that, that we as a people would long to see more of you, that we would long to know Jesus and, God, to love him. God, reveal him to us in your word. God, take, God, take my simple and flawed words. Um, God, take my weak communication, and God, um, move in hearts because it's your desire and because <clears throat> it's what you want. God, encourage the hearts of your people, and God, make us a people that are committed to your word, that see you for who you are, and love you. Father, we pray this in your precious name and for your glory. Amen. Keep looking for something Even though I know that it's not